0: Please open your Bible to Matthew 5. Matthew 5. This month of March is one of my favorite times of the year since I was about eight or nine years old. And uh, one of the reasons why it's one of my favorite times of the year is all the predictions that take place in March. And they all all those predictions have to do with one thing, and that is the NCAA college, Men's College Basketball Tournament, or March Madness. And one of the things that I love about all the predictions that are made during this time is how incredibly incompetent. We all are at predicting things correctly. Oh, all of us. The odds of predicting a perfect bracket are one in 9.2 quintillion. And it's never been proven that anybody has predicted a perfect bracket, all 63 games in the NCAA tournaments. That's since 1985. So one of our, there are, I think it's estimated 60 to 100 million brackets filled out every year Not one of them, not one of them has been correct. And most years, like this year, it takes less than two days before there are no perfect brackets out there. You're more likely, I was telling Christine about all this earlier today, she she loved hearing about this. You're more likely to just pick six random people on the street and they would happen to have the same birth date as you. You're more likely to find six of those people just like right there than you are to predict a perfect bracket. There were more, but I don't remember any of them right now. But uh, it's, oh, you can win, you're more likely to win Powerball and Mega Millions in the same week, week just buying one ticket than you are to predict the perfect bracket. But I do, while, while we are very incompetent, no matter how much expertise you have at predicting the NCAA tournament, I do have one March prediction for you that I'm 100% confident about, and it's this. Something frustrating is gonna happen to you in the next 24 hours. Something is not going to go the way you want it to go. Maybe it's your terrible tournament pick, which my champ- the team that I picked to be the champion in our little family bracket, they lost earlier today. I was riding high, and then they just lost. But maybe it's that. Maybe it's you putting your foot in your mouth again. That happens to many of us. Uh, maybe it's the clothes that are left on the floor by someone you live with. Maybe it's the terrible night of sleep you're going to have tonight. There is something in the next 24 hours, is not going to go how you want it to go. The question is this, how will you respond? How are you going to respond to that? When things don't go our way, this tends to bother us. We get irritated, we get frustrated, we get angry. You now, Just yesterday I was driving down the uh, road and the driver in front of me was going probably about, I think it was 10 miles per hour under the speed limit. And we're on a, I mean, I, there was no way to pass them, so I, I was thinking it's not that big of a deal, and I'm I'm studying this text on anger, and so it's like, yeah, I don't need to get angry at this. It's not a big deal. And then, and I also knew that I was about to turn, and they would go straight, and so it was no big deal. So I turned, and then not a mile down the road, there was somebody in front of me going like 15 miles per hour under the speed limit, and I had nowhere else to go as well. Um, Now, I mean, I tell myself it's not that big of a deal, it's not going to affect my life that much, but something inside of me stirs at this circumstance, in these moments, for you, maybe it's not the car in front of you. Maybe it's your child or your spouse, or maybe it's yourself. Maybe it's political leaders or, or celebrities. There's, there's, things don't go the way you want them to go, and something stirs inside of you. There's this madness inside of us, not just in March, but every month, every day. There's this madness inside of us that stirs when things don't go our way. And what is this madness? What do we believe about ourselves that causes This dismay about our circumstances to turn into something evil? What is it that we believe about ourselves in these moments? Fundamentally, it's this. We desire to be God. We desire to be God. Now, maybe we don't think we want to be that big G God over everything that we were just singing about, but we want to be the little G gods over our circumstances, over our relationships, our little kingdoms. We just want things to go our way. Now, it's insane for us to think that we can be God. We are the people who cannot pick who will win a basketball game. We lose our keys and our toys. We step in puddles. We cut ourselves shaving. All kinds of things we do. We are certainly not gods. But here's the thing. Because we're sinful, we are unreasonable. Sin has never been reasonable. It's never been about what makes sense. Sin is a delusion, It's a madness, and in our madness, we think we can be kings and queens of our own little kingdoms. And when we're confronted with the fact that we aren't, we tend to get angry. Now, anger is the way we react to something when something we think is important is not the way it's supposed to be. Anger comes up against our expectations, what we expect to happen. We think we should be treated a certain way. We think we should have a certain thing. We think we should things should go according to our plans, and when they don't, we're often tempted to be angry. Now, sinful anger is is like a sword, and it's bent on destruction. It's contrary to the law of God and deadly serious in the eyes of Christ. Sinful anger is antithetical to living life in God's kingdom. And this afternoon, as we continue our study of Matthew, Jesus wants to show us what wisdom looks like when it is put into practice. The whole Sermon on the Mount is all about this kingdom living. It is it is what does it look like for those who are Christ's disciples to live in this world? It's about a certain way of being in the world that is shaped by identity, shaped by who we are, by who we are as disciples of this this wise teacher, Jesus Christ. Now over the next several weeks we're going to look at six specific illustrations of the ways that Christ's disciples are called to live. And this afternoon we come to the first, and it addresses our angry hearts. So if you would look with me, Matthew chapter five, beginning in verse twenty one, and we'll hear hear the word of the Lord. This is his inerrant, infallible, sufficient word of God for us. Matthew five, twenty one. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Thanks be to God for his word. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for speaking to us through your word. Thank you that you are a God who graciously reveals yourself to us through your word. Thank you for giving access to these words. And Spirit, would you open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things from your word? Help me to point these dear people to you. Help us all to look to you as our only hope in every situation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, each of these six examples that we're going to be looking at in the coming weeks, they, they describe kingdom living, and they all follow this similar pattern. We see it right here. Jesus begins by stating what his hearers have heard about the law, how they've understood it, and then he goes on to define what this law means. And this is what we see in verses 21 and 22. We're going to get to a, a principle that te- Jesus teaches about his law. So Jesus says in Matthew 5, 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. This is the sixth commandment of the Ten Commandments. From the very beginning, God has placed tremendous value on the lives of those who bear his image. So much so that that he does include not to murder in the Ten Commandments, in the Decalogue. But it's not as if that's where this caring about human life begins. No, well before Moses, we read in Genesis 4 about Cain and Abel. So just a couple pages into the Scripture, we come across these two brothers. You know the story. They're both bringing their offerings to the Lord, and in Genesis 4-4 we read that the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord then asked Cain, he says, why are you angry? And the Lord goes on to tell him that sin is crouching at his door. God says, its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. But in the very next verse, we see Cain's desire, his desires, they rule over him and you know what happens. He kills his brother. The Lord then brings judgment upon Cain. There's, there's death, and then there's judgment. When Cain begins to grasp how severe his punishment is, he fears for his life. But the Lord tells him that he will protect his life. And while God places great life on the value on the life of his image bearers, humanity tends to do the opposite. And we see this just a few verses later. As Genesis 4 continues, it gives the the descendants of Cain, and it culminates in this guy named Lamech. And Lamech, he boasts about the fact that there was a man who struck him, and he killed the man. He killed the man for striking him, and this is his boast. This is his confidence. From this point on, the biblical narrative is filled with accounts of murder and murderers, as well as the devastating consequences which follow. With murder always comes judgment. That's all throughout Scripture. I've been reading just in the past couple of weeks through Kings and Chronicles, and it's disturbing to notice how this cycle repeats itself again and again and again. These books, they record the history of the kings of Israel, those appointed by God to lead his people. And so often in their, their delusion of power, their delusion of authority and control, these kings become angry and murderers. You can turn to us, you don't have to turn there now, but in 2 Kings 15, You see Shalom murder Zechariah, the king, and so he becomes king. And then Menahem murders Shalom, and then Menahem dies. He doesn't get murdered. But then his son, Pekiah, he's murdered by Pekah, and then Pekah is murdered by Hosea. That's a lot of murder, just on like a few paragraphs, one page. Why? The reason why there was all this murder is because they all wanted to be king. Since only one could be king, they had to destroy their rivals. When rivals threaten our rule we resort to murderous rage that's what we see played out time and time again and this is just what the devil does this is the devil's game in John eight forty four, this is how Jesus describes the devil he says of his opponents he says first you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires and Jesus describes him he says he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him Now, the Pharisees and scribes, they knew all this. They knew about the devil's game. They knew the history of anger and murder. But they sought to understand the law in such a way that they could obey it. So they limited God's law to something that they could do. Their boast was in their own ability. And so they they construed God's commands in such a way that they could follow them. And they knew they were no murderers. But Jesus... Speaking out of his own authority, he goes much further than those whose goal was outward conformity to God's law. Jesus begins in verse 22, but I say to you. Now we don't really see it here in, in English, but in, in Greek there's this emphasis that Jesus places on the fact that he himself is saying this. So it's, I myself say. He makes this statement of his own authority. He's not giving his opinion of the law, his interpretation of the law, but he's staking his claim as as on par with the law of God. He is the arbiter of God's truth. Now, if any Pharisee, any rabbi, if they stated the law of God and then said, but I myself say to you, they would have been killed. Jesus' statement, it, it prompts his listeners, it prompts us to ask this question, who is this? Who has the authority to determine god's law and it's only god himself so out of his authority then jesus gives the meaning of his law i say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment he's explaining that the law goes much further than his listeners think well they think the issue is about bloodshed jesus says this is only the starting point for following my law Jesus defines the principle behind God's command. While murder is wicked, it only reveals the anger in the heart of humanity. The principle is that God's concern is our hearts. God's concern is the heart. Now in Scripture, our, our hearts, they refer to the entirety of who we are. In our day and age, we tend to associate hearts, our hearts with our affections. So I love you with my whole heart. But the heart is not just our affections, but it's our, our motivations, our desires, our will, our thoughts. It speaks of who we believe to be, believe ourselves to be. It speaks to our identity, of all that determines how we act. And this is God's chief concern, the heart. In 1 Samuel 16:7, it says that the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God's law has always been meant to address who we are on the inside, our, our inner disposition. And this is not new with the ministry of Jesus, with the New Testament. This was always God's concern. God's concern is the heart. So we saw this in Cain and Abel's story, how God warned Cain that, that sin is crouching in his door. Sin inside him is anger, and it will lead to destruction. We also see this all throughout the Prophets. God calls his people to pursue righteousness with their whole heart. And this pursuit of righteousness, it's not seen in outward actions of obedience, not only seen in outward actions of obedience, but it's characterized by an inner disposition to the kingdom of God. It's marked by a heart that longs to do the will of God. Now, Jesus continues by defining the severity of anger. He says in verse 22, "...everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment." Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, It would be nice to think that this was just this succession of ascending offenses with corresponding punishments, each one more significant than the one before, but that's not what's going on here. Instead, Jesus is, is using somewhat offensive but pretty ordinary criticisms that people used in his day. And his listeners might have started chuckling at the thought That's of someone being tried in court for an insult. But then Jesus shocks them by saying that this behavior may lead to the very fire of hell. I mean, imagine being there in that moment. And then you're thinking, yeah, somebody's going to court for saying, for, for calling out an insult. And then he says next, whoever says you fool is liable for the fire of hell. Jesus is saying that those who are angry, wrathful, spiteful, contemptuous, those who in a moment of anger want to hurt their brother or sister or wish the worst on their coworker, or wish the worst on the person who cuts them off in traffic, these people deserve the very judgment of murderers. Jesus is saying that our words and the feelings in our hearts, they, they reveal our true spiritual condition. They reveal who we are. One theologian said it this way, he said, we treat the damage we do with our lips very lightly because we do not see the corpses we leave behind. So it's, we tend to think it's not a big deal what we say. We don't see the corpses we leave behind. Jesus wants to awaken us from our complacency. It can leave plenty of room for hateful words and murderous thoughts. We think they're harmless, we think they're, we keep them to ourselves. But Jesus is putting them on par with murder, To emphasize this point, Jesus then provides two examples of what we are to pursue instead of anger. These examples aren't laws or advice or legal counsel, but they're meant to show for us how important it is to be in right relationship with those around us. What Jesus has in mind throughout this text is anger as it comes out in our personal relationships. A part of what it means not to murder is to be in right relationship with others. So we're going to see two examples. The first example is verses 23 and 24. And it addresses the importance of relationships in the church. Jesus describes an individual who's offering a gift at the altar. That's someone who has come to worship God. Now, it's likely Jesus was teaching this sermon in Galilee. And the altar that his listeners would have been thinking about would be in Jerusalem, about 80 miles away. So that individual would have traveled some great distance, probably over several days, to bring his offering to the altar. And Jesus says, if you get there and then remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go be reconciled to your brother. This is as radical and drastic as it sounds. In forbidding sinful anger, Jesus is making it clear that we should make every effort to pursue its opposite and its opposite is reconciliation right relationships in the church are so important that they necessitate decisive and significant action right relationships are matter so much to god that we should take decisive and significant action in order to be reconciled again we see that god's concern isn't only our outward behavior but it's the inner disposition of our heart his priority is not just that we come to Him in worship, though we should, but even more so that our hearts are wholly submitted to Him in every way. As Proverbs 21.3 says, To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Now perhaps you've experienced moments like me where you've been in conflict with your spouse or with your child or your parent or your friend. You've gathered with the church for corporate worship but you're kind of nagged by this distracting interaction that you've had, and you keep trying to put it out of your mind. Here, Jesus is saying that your worship of God is closely tied to the relationships that you have with others. Or to put it another way, our our horizontal relationships impact our vertical relationship with God. We come before God not as isolated individuals, but as people in relation with one another. People Related and God cares a great deal about these relationships. So, if you're aware of sin towards someone else, go and be reconciled. And what does this look like? Well, it looks like not saying, Hey, can you ask my forgiveness for what you've done to me? That's not going and being reconciled. Going and being reconciled, pursuing reconciliation, is looking at your own heart, confessing your anger and animosity, confessing your pride or your lack of charity confessing where you've been impatient and selfish and you ask to be forgiven. To put to death anger in our lives is to pursue reconciliation with those God has put us in fellowship with. Now another aspect of sinful anger that's implicitly acknowledged is that anger spreads. Anger is infectious. It doesn't just stay with the angry person but it often even normally spreads to other people. You can see this in the broader culture quite clearly every day. Turn on the TV, watch the news, go to a news website, and you see anger spreading. It's infectious. Spend time on social media. It spreads. Anger is infectious. When we're angry, we want other people to join us in our anger because this this validates us in what we are thinking, in how we are feeling. And we must reject this desire and instead go and be reconciled with those we have wronged. And this takes humility. When we who are in our pretending to be God mode, the last thing we want to do is humble ourselves. To acknowledge that we don't know everything. To acknowledge that we were wrong. To acknowledge that we have sinned. That's the last thing we want to do when we're pretending to be God. But this is what Christ calls his disciples to do as they follow him. You know, one example from my own life is: is I think of times where I've been corrected. When I was a kid, it was my parents. Now that I'm older, it's my wife. Oftentimes, bringing me a corrective word, an observation. When I'm pretending to know it all, when I'm living like that, it's really hard to take that, because in my my omniscience is very very fragile, and when that correction comes, it it threatens that omniscience, my know-it-allness. When I'm proud when I need to be right, I don't want to hear otherwise. I'm guessing you're probably like me in that way. And when we're corrected, we hate to have the obvious reality that we don't know it all pointed out to us. And so we get angry. We respond in anger. Sometimes that anger might be outward and you see it. It's very animated. Sometimes no one might know and you just keep it inside you. But it's anger all the same. Brothers and sisters, the reconciliation that God has bought for us by the blood of Christ is far more important than being right. It says all we need to know about ourselves, the cross does. We are without hope on our own, but God has bought us by his wonderful grace and brought us into new life in him. And now we are reconciled both to him and to one another. So may we humbly and quickly pursue reconciliation. Let us live as we are, those reconciled to God and reconciled to one another, and pursue reconciliation quickly. One author writes, he says, a healthy church ought to be a kind of petri dish in which reconciliation multiplies like a good bacterium. It will never be a place where there's no anger, where relationships never fracture. That must await the new Jerusalem. But it is to be a place. Healthy churches are to be a place where reconciliation is a high priority. May God give us grace, continue to give us grace to be a people where reconciliation is a high priority. That's the first example Jesus gives us. Reconciliation, relationships, right relationships in the church. Now the second example we see in verses 25 and 26, and it addresses difficult relationships or relationships with those opposed to us. And Jesus describes here an individual who has been accused of wrong by someone else and is being brought to court. Now, the wrong is likely failure to repay a debt that's owed. And Jesus says, come to terms quickly with your accuser. Don't let this problem fester like a gaping wound, but resolve it as quickly as possible. Now, with, ex- with this example comes a warning. If you let the conflict remain unresolved your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you may be put in prison. And once in prison, he says in the last verse, verse 26, you may never be able to get out. Jesus' point is that we should not let bad relationships go unresolved, or they may bring us to destruction. Don't assume that bad relationships will just go away. Rather, assume that they are a ticking time bomb that must be disarmed. Now, I tend to be someone who wants to avoid conflict i don't like conflict especially when a relationship is difficult i don't want to make the phone call i don't want to see the person i just want to ignore it and hope that eventually it'll just go away but jesus gives us a warning here that any conflict with others is a very serious matter that will often lead to destruction so his encouragement is to pursue reconciliation now you may be thinking well that sounds good that sounds good Devin." but you just don't know my situation. If you're thinking that you're right, I don't probably don't know your situation, but God does. And God goes with you in that situation. God goes before you in that situation. He has brought you into that situation that you might depend on him, that you might be conformed to Christ, that he might bring glory to himself. Now, Jesus is not teaching reconciliation at all costs. He's not saying to get all your dirty laundry out there and deal with the consequences. But he is calling us to exactly what he talked about in the Beatitudes. Those who are followers of Jesus Christ live as those who are poor in spirit. They don't place their confidence in their own righteousness, but humbly confess their own sinfulness, their own need for a Savior. Those who follow Jesus Christ, they are those who mourn over the devastation their sin causes. The division that's brought about by anger and pride, by selfish desire. Those who follow Jesus Christ are those who are meek. They don't operate out of an attitude that says, I deserve better, but they live lives marked by humility, counting others more significant than themselves. Those who follow Jesus Christ are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're not vengeful, but want to see God's rules rules followed, God's name honored and glorified. The goodness of God's ways shine bright in the world. Those who are disciples of Jesus Christ are merciful because of the great mercy they've received from God the Father in Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. They know that what they deserve, they have not been given. And instead of received mercy, then they've received mercy instead of judgment. They've received grace instead of wrath. They are those who are pure in heart, not believing the worst about others, but quick to extend charity and patience, longing to live in the good of God's ways. They're peacemakers. Humbly and graciously pursuing reconciliation with those around them, wanting to see the peace of God characterize every relationship they have. Unless we forget, Christ's followers, they're those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. They're those who are reviled and falsely accused on Christ's account. Because of who they are, Jesus says conflict will come. But because of who I am, because of who Jesus is and what he has done, this conflict is not the end of the story. He says that. As you live as who you are in him, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. And this is really the paradoxical way of Jesus. In suffering, we find blessing. In weakness, we find strength. In humility, we find exaltation, which is what we see in in Philippians 2, where Paul writes, he, he encourages the Philippian church. So if you have any encouragement I should turn there before I butcher it. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Then Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And look to Christ's example, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of his humility, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Brothers and sisters, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Our response to fighting our anger is not just a series of practical steps to take as if we can just manage or medicate our anger but it is a battle that is won step by painful step as we look to jesus christ one pastor writes it's christ who gives me a new self with new desires it's christ who places me in a new body as a kindergarten for love it's christ who gives me peace through the inestimable privilege of access to god It's Christ who gives me strength by His Spirit to resist the devil. Christ who forgives and enables me to forgive. Christ who loves and opens the fountains of my own love. Christ who came to destroy the works of the devil. Christ who can change and subdue sinful anger. Christ, and only Christ. What we all need is the mind of Christ. The wisdom of Christ. So what do we do? How do we get that? Two things I want to tell you. Pray. James tells us, If you want wisdom, seek it. Ask God for it. Who gives generously to those who ask. So pray. Pray that God would give you his wisdom, that you would be able to walk in his wisdom. Know how to navigate difficult relationships, difficult circumstances. Pray and hear God's word. Listen to God's word. Those who tend not to listen to other people, eventually tend not to listen to God either. Brothers and sisters, let us be a people who hear God's word, who are quick to hear, who are slow to speak, slow to anger. James says for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We cannot change ourselves, but God has given us his holy spirit who works in us to do this work, who works in us to bring glory to the name of God, who conforms us to the image of Christ. So whether you are feeling the weight of weight and burden of your anger, cast it on Jesus. Look to him and trust in him. Or if you're thinking, you know what, I'm a lot better than I thought I was. I thought I was going to really be hit hard by the sermon on anger. Maybe if that's you, look again at your heart. Look again at your heart. God cares about conforming us to the image of Christ. That's, that's the business that he is in. And he wants to do that through people who are full of his grace, who are full of his mercy, because that is how he has treated us. So let us rejoice in that mercy together. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the gift of grace you've shown us in Jesus Christ. Thank you that though we rejected you in our sin, you have been patient with us. Thank you that you are a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And Lord, help us to be a people who are quick to reconcile with one another, who are quick to go to one another, confessing our sin, asking for forgiveness, and extending mercy to one another. Lord, help us to be people who depend on you and who look to you in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.